Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Arrival of a King. All right, so here we are at the end of chapter 10, and we have been following Jesus as he's been making his way to Jerusalem to accomplish his primary mission in life. We all know what that is. The primary mission of our Lord Jesus Christ for, for leaving heaven and coming to the earth is to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. And so what we've seen in chapters one through 10 is the main theme of Jesus' service. And halfway through this message, we're gonna get into chapter 11 and we're gonna see from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 16 that the main theme changes and the main theme is gonna be Jesus' sacrifice, okay? But before we get to chapter 11, and we talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, we first have to read about an amazing miracle that took place right outside of Jericho, all right? So I'm gonna pick it up in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. And I hope you're following along in your Bible. It says, and they, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I love verse 49, the first three words, and Jesus did what? Stopped. Do you see that? Even though many in the crowd were rebuking him, telling him to shut up, telling him stop making a scene. You know, the Lord doesn't care about you. When he cried out in the name of the Lord, Jesus stopped. You may be here today and you got a lot going on in your life and you're being opposed on, on, on every side and you think God doesn't care. No, no, listen, if you'll cry out the name of the Lord, he will stop because he loves you. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus, I love this, sprang up. You see that? You know what I call that? I call that enthusiasm. I call that excitement. Some of you come to church and you see here at Calvary, uh, we're pretty enthusiastic. We're pretty excited. And some of you guys don't know why. It's because Jesus is calling us. That's why. It's something to get excited about. And so he springs up and he came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, in the original it's Rabboni, it means master, Lord. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your, what's the word? Faith. See, without faith it's impossible to please him. Go your way, your faith has made you well, literally your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. And so I want you to picture it in your mind, the Lord and his disciples, 
are leaving Jericho. There's a great crowd following along with them. How many, how many of you have ever been to a stadium and you, you've, you've heard the, the noise of a great crowd, right? So you can understand that context. But above the noise of the crowd, he can, Jesus can hear somebody shouting his name. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And a lot of people in the crowd are going uh, to blind Bartimaeus, the local beggar. Every day, I don't know if his relatives, his friends, whatever, would take this man, uh, lead him to a certain road right outside of Jericho, and all day long, from sunrise to sunset, he would beg for money, he would ask for alms for people who were making their ascent, their pilgrimage up to uh, Jerusalem, which is 15 miles away. And so he hears that Jesus is coming and he begins to shout and people begin to tell him to, sh- to, to, to be quiet, you know, stop yelling, you're annoying everybody. But he all the more, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus stops. And he says, call him over. And so now the, the attitude of the crowd is changing towards blind Bartimaeus and their attitude is, hey, Bart, Take heart, get up. He's calling for you. And he springs up to his feet. He's blind, he doesn't know where to go. And so he gets some people to lead him to Jesus. God's calling us to lead people to Jesus. And all of a sudden, can you see it in your mind's eye? The crowd parts and there they are. They're bringing blind Bartimaeus up to the Lord. And he stands right in front of the uncreated son of God. Messiah, son of David. And Jesus, he's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. He asks him a question. What would you have me to do for you? Lord, that I may recover my sight. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And immediately, Bartimaeus, who was once blind, now could see. So what did Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before the, the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, what did Isaiah the prophet in the, what we call Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, what did he prophesy would happen when the Messiah landed on earth? You don't have to turn there, I'm just gonna read it to you. Isaiah 35, five and six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, 700 BC. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jewish scriptures, the word of God prophesied hundreds of prophecies, but in this particular case prophesied that the way you're gonna know it's the Messiah is he's gonna have the power to open the eyes of the blind. Tell me, who ever in the history of mankind could ever have the power to open the eyes of the blind? One man in history, Jesus of Nazareth. He opened the eyes of the blind and stopped the the, the ears of the deaf. He caused the mute to speak, paralyzed people to, to jump up and dance around, and he even raised dead people from the grave. He is our hero. He is our Messiah. Now, Bartimaeus' physical blindness is a picture of our spiritual blindness. So as we 
apply this before we get into chapter 11. You need to know that his physical blindness is a picture of our, and I'll include me in this, our spiritual blindness, okay? Everybody enters into the world spiritually blind and in need of amazing grace. So if you want to receive spiritual sight, there's some things you gotta do. Number one, you need to realize you're blind. Number two, you need to recognize Jesus' true identity. And then number three, you need to respond to his call. Okay, step one, realize that we are blind. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world, if you're new to the Bible, the God of this world is Satan, the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How many of you guys know unbelievers? Okay, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds, according to God's word, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Okay, so the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan and his henchmen, the demons, they're all over the globe, and, 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 and their main purpose in life is to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep them in the darkness, to do whatever they can do to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And one of the ways that they keep people blinded is by lying to them about self-righteousness. Everybody say the word self-righteousness. Okay, so that's one of the primary ways the enemy keeps people in darkness. And so he whispers in people's ears, you're a good person, you're okay. If there's a God, when you die, he'll take you to heaven. It's all right. And people by the millions believe that in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, 80s, if they live on the 90s or 100, and they take their last breath and they slip off into a Christless, godless eternity. Ladies and gentlemen, if good works could save us, Christ died in vain. Do you get that? Why? Tell me why the Son of God would come to this earth and allow people to spit on him and beat him and nail him to a cross. Why did he go through all of that if we could make it to heaven just by being good people? Here's the, the fact, the fact is we're not good. This book, God's word tells us the truth. It says that there's none righteous, no, not one. That's Romans 3.10. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And what is the wage that we deserve for sinning against the holy God? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? And I've said it before and I'll say it until I have no more breath in my lungs. Death does not just refer to physical death because we are not just physical beings. God made us material and immaterial, a body and soul. And so the body is here for a little while. The soul will live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. And the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. That's eternal separation from God, what I'm doing, because this is where we are in the Bible, I'm preaching the gospel at the very beginning of the message today. I hope you're listening. 
That's the bad news. But how many of you are thankful that Romans 5, 8 says that God showed his love. Say, say the word love. love. His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are you grateful for that? Yeah. I am. I'll clap too. Yeah. I am so glad for that. And so God showed his love toward us in this while we were yet sinners, while we still offended him by our sin and our rebellion, Christ came and Christ died for who? For us. What does that mean? That means that the Son of God hung half naked on a cross and he took your sin and my sin into his body on the tree and he died in our place so we would not have to die and pay for our sins in hell. He paid it all. He absorbed the wrath of God against your sin and my sin so that we could be recipients of love and grace and peace and joy. The bottom line is that Christ came down from heaven because we're blind and he wants us to see. But here's the first step, you got to admit you're blind. As long as you're self-righteous and you say, I don't need this stuff, I can see, I'm fine. You will remain in the darkness. What you have to do is you have to be like blind Bartimaeus and you have to say, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus will be right there. Second thing that you have to do, if you're taking notes, is to recognize Jesus' true identity. So what's his true identity? Well, Bartimaeus told us he's the son of David. That's a title for the Messiah. He is the Rabboni. He's the Lord, Messiah. And so Bartimaeus had no problem admitting, believing who Jesus really was, not just a, a teacher or a rabbi or a good guy or a miracle worker. He's the Lord. He is the, 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 the Messiah. And we have to come to that same place. And by the way, he's not just the Messiah. He is, listen, God in the flesh. Right, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I, I quoted this last week. And the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Realize that we're blind. Recognize true, Jesus' true identity and then finally respond to his call. Hebrews in chapters three and four I've been reading through that in my devotions. I just finished this past week getting through Hebrews, but it says not once, not twice, but three times in Hebrews three and four, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me, right? And so that's what he does. And Bartimaeus had no problem responding to the call of Jesus. What did he do? He sprang up to his feet. And he asked some people to lead him to the Lord. And so when we will come to the place in our life where we realize we're blind and recognize Jesus' true identity and we will respond to his call, then Jesus will say to us, as he did to Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you. And when that happens in your life, I hope that you'll do exactly what Bartimaeus did. He followed the Lord. You see how it all works out? And so amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found. You finish it out. But was blind, but now I see. How many of you are thankful for God's grace in your life? Okay, and so after this amazing miracle, proving again he's Messiah, Jesus begins his ascent up to Jerusalem. The reason I say ascent is because he's in Jericho. Jericho's about 850 feet below sea level down in the Jordan Valley. You guys know the Dead Sea near Jericho is the lowest place on earth. 800 Jericho, the Dead Sea is even farther down, but Jericho's 850 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, way up on Mount Moriah. And so Jesus is making his ascent up to Jerusalem. It's a 15 mile walk. And so you gotta be in pretty good shape to walk up from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem. If you go with us to Israel, we're not gonna walk it, we'll be in a bus. We'll make that ascent and we'll sing, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem on the bus. It's a wonderful time. Um, now, and so you gotta be in pretty good shape, first century AD, to, to, to make that 15 mile walk uphill. My wife and I love going to the mountains. We love walking in the mountains. We love walking down the mountains, not up the mountains. How many of you guys ever walked up a mountain? My goodness. It's like we gotta drag each other up, but we make good memories. And so you gotta be in pretty good shape, unless, first century AD, you hitch a ride on a donkey. And that's a great lead in, right? To Chapter 11, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And so here we are, we're at the pivotal point of the Gospel of Mark. We're moving from the main theme of sacrifice to the main theme of service. And it says in chapter 11, verse one, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So an unbroken little donkey. Untie it and bring it. Verse three. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And so verse four, the two disciples went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Right, this is a big deal. This would be like if you uh, drove your car today and parked it outside the front of your home, but left the keys in it, and then later on, you look out your front window and somebody's getting into your car and driving away. Right, this is their means of transportation in the first century. What are you doing untying the colt? Verse six, and they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Now, by the way, before we get to verse seven, you need to know that um, the triumphal entries in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's so significant what we're talking about today. And in Matthew's gospel, it says that they also brought the mare. So they brought in the little young donkey, unbroken, and its mother, the broken mare. And then it says that they, they bring these two donkeys, Matthew says, to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He gets on the little, young, unbroken donkey. So that's what it says in verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. 
and he sat on it. Now, nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John does it say that when he sat on this unbroken animal that it tried to, you know, kick him off or run around in circles. The little young donkey was submissive to the Lord and we need in the church more donkeys to stop kicking against the Lord's will in your life and just do what he says. Okay, and so Jesus is now ready to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and present himself as the king of Israel. And so here's the question. If he's gonna present himself as the king of Israel, why is he riding in on a little donkey when he could, let's say, choose a, a massive, majestic white horse? Well, we know, those of us who know Revelation, specifically Revelation 19, that there is a massive, majestic white horse on reserve for his second coming. But here during his first coming, he had to fulfill ancient prophecy found way back in Zechariah. This is written 500 years BC. Okay, so this is one of those messianic prophecies fulfilled in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your, what? Your king. It's a messianic prophecy. This is how you identify Jewish nation who your Messiah is. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And look how specific the prophecy is. On a colt, so not the mare, not the mama, but the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the Jews who knew their scriptures knew that when Messiah came, he would come in fulfillment of that verse. He would come riding on a donkey. So once again, why did Jesus choose a little donkey and not a massive horse? There's actually two reasons. Number one is he knew he had to fulfill that prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Number two, he had to send a message to the Roman Empire. Okay, so the Roman Empire, um, they dominated, they occupied Israel at this time. And you need to know that in the ancient Middle East, kings rode horses if they were riding into war, but they rode donkeys if they were declaring peace. And I want you to picture this in your mind. Where are we in the Bible? We are at the week of Passover. We're at the week of Passover, one of the primary feasts of the Jews. What does that mean? That means that tens of thousands of Jews from around the known world are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is swelling in size, you know, two, three, four, we don't know, but it's, it's just packed with hundreds of thousands of people. What does that mean? That means that the Roman occupiers are on high alert. Because the, the, the city is so full with patriotic Jews, because the nationalistic fervor is at an all-time high, the, the Roman soldiers were on high alert and they're patrolling the city. They're probably bringing in reinforcements because if there's any time that a revolt may happen, Jews revolting against the Romans, it's right now, it's during the week of Passover. And so if Jesus would have come riding into Jerusalem on a majestic white horse, the Roman soldiers could have converged down on the crowd and some people could have been hurt and killed. And so what does he do? He sends a message to those who don't know the Bible, the Romans. 
And instead of riding in on a horse, he rides in on a little donkey. And so the Roman soldiers are there, thousands of people in the Kidron Valley. He's up on the Western slope, he's coming down. You better believe the Roman soldiers were very aware of all of this. And they thought, man, they're getting pretty excited here, but he's on a donkey. And so they knew that Jesus' intentions were peaceful. Okay, and so verse eight now. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread, what's the, what's the next word? Leafy branch, uh, two words, leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is super interesting in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so I want you to picture the scene in your mind. There's Jesus on a little donkey up on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. If you go with us, I'll take you to the very spot. So you got the Mount of Olives coming down western slope to the Kidron Valley, going up to the city of Jerusalem, and then of course, on Mount Moriah, the Jewish temple for all to see. So there he is, and you know what? Um, I appreciate people who try to make movies about Jesus, but you know, some of these Jesus movies of the past have forever wrecked my view of how things actually were. Because in some of these Jesus movies, there's Jesus on the donkey, and there's 15 men in bathrobes waving palm fronds. And listen, that's not how it was at all. This is Passover week. There's thousands of people everywhere. And John chapter 12 tells us that the reason they all came out is because Jesus had recently raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, just over on the other side of the Mount of Olives in a little town called Bethany. And word had spread like wildfire. I mean, if, if someone, if you know someone was dead and then um, tomorrow they're, they're dead, but then all of a sudden they're raised to life, do you think you would talk about it? Everybody's talking about Jesus raising the dead man. And so there they all are, flooding the Kidron Valley. And there Jesus is coming down the Western slope and the crowd is going absolutely crazy. And so when a new king was coronated, the custom was the citizens would take off their outer garment, lay the outer garment on the ground. It was an act of submission as he rode Kings would ride horses. They rode their horse over their outer garments. It was an act of submission. I'm in submission to you, king. This is what they did for Jesus. And he rode over their garments on a little donkey. They also took, according to Mark, leafy branches. What kind of branches? John tells us in John 12, it's palm tree branches. And I'm sure some of them waved the palm trees, others put the palm tree branches down on the ground. And that's why we remember once a year on our church calendar, this event as what? You tell me, Palm Sunday. Not only did they lay their outer garments on the ground, not only did they wave and lay down palm tree branches, they also shouted out phrases from Psalm 118. Okay, so this is a Messianic Psalm, 1000 BC. Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. And does this this sound familiar here? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was written 1,000 years before Christ ever came. That's a messianic psalm. And so once again, can you hear it? Thousands of people shouting out, there he is, it's Jesus. And he's coming on a donkey, just like Zechariah said. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're all going crazy. So to understand what's really going on here, first of all, we have to grasp that there's two different groups. If you're with me, say amen here. This is key. One group is his true followers. They love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus Christ is Messiah. They're with them. They're with him. But then you have a much larger group, and that's the fickle crowd. And they have different motives for following Jesus. So to really understand what's going on here in your Bible, you gotta understand the significance of two things. The palm tree branches and the word Hosanna. And so I'm gonna give you a little bit of historical context so you can understand what's really going on in your Bible. So the Jewish custom of celebrating with palm branches dates back to the second century BC. How many of you ever heard of the, the family called the Maccabees? Let me see your hand if you've ever heard of the Maccabees. Okay, that's 40%. You actually have the most people here out of all three services that have heard about the Maccabees. And so the Maccabees was a Jewish family that lived in the second century BC, and they are famous because they revolted against their enemies called the Seleucid Empire. Let me ask you another question. How many of you ever heard of Alexander the Great? Every hand should go up or there's a problem in our schools. (laughs) So Alexander the Great, you know, um, you think back, first the Babylonians, they have world domination, then the Persians beat the Babylonians, and then the Greeks beat the Persians. And who is the Greek king and leader? It was Alexander the Great. He spread his empire. And because he was Greek, he tried to push Greek culture on the civilized world. It's called the Hellenization of civilization. And so Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC, and he divides his, well, they divided his kingdom up into four different parts, ruled over by four generals. I wanna give you the name of just two of them. One general was called Ptolemy, the other general was called Seleucus. Ptolemy went down to Egypt. He started what's called the Ptolemaic dynasty, which turned into the Ptolemaic empire. Seleucus goes up to Syria. And Syria, um, they actually started the Seleucid dynasty and the Seleucid empire. So the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south hated each other and they engaged in what's called the Syrian Wars. What I'm doing now is I'm giving you historical context between Malachi and Matthew during the intertestamental period. And so they hate each other and they're fighting. Now, those of you who know geography, Syria, Egypt, what nation is in between? Israel. And so Israel is constantly getting in the crossfire between these two warring nations. You fast forward to 167 BC, 
and a king rises to the throne for the Seleucid Empire up in Syria, and his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. This guy thought he was something else. Epiphanes, the title that he took, it literally means in Greek, God manifest. So he thinks he's God. That's a big problem, right? He's the king of the Seleucid Empire. He wants to spread Greek culture all over the civilized world like Alexander the Great. And so if you wanna be progressive, you better get on board. He wants everybody to worship the Greek gods. He wants everybody to speak the Greek language. But those stubborn Jews down in Judea, they wanna keep speaking Hebrew. They don't wanna worship the Greek gods. They only wanna worship the Lord, Yahweh. And they have all these rules and regulations. And so he hates the Jews. And so what happens is that Antiochus IV Epiphanes goes down, he attacks Judea, he slaughters many Jews, he goes into Jerusalem, he seizes the Jewish temple, and then he commits the greatest act of sacrilege anybody could ever commit against the Jewish nation. He sets up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, and he carries in a pig Anybody knows Leviticus, you know how horrible this is. And he slaughters a pig in the Jewish temple in honor of Zeus. He tells all the Jews, you will no longer worship Yahweh, you will worship our gods. You will no longer read Torah, you will follow our rules. And he made them eat pork. And he made them sacrifice to the Greek gods. And Judas Maccabeus said, no way. And so he and his brothers, the Maccabeans, led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire. They had fewer men, they had fewer weapons, but they engaged in guerrilla warfare and they fought with all their hearts. I believe God was with them. And they drove back the enemy out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, and they actually won their independence. This is 164 BC. They reclaimed the Jewish temple and they dedicated the Jewish temple back to the worship of the Lord, the only God, Yahweh. This event is still celebrated today by Jews all over the world. It's called the Feast of Dedication, otherwise known as Hanukkah. Every December they celebrate this. And so what you need to know is that there's similarities about what happened in 164 BC to what's happening here in your Bible. And the reason I say that is because how did the Jews in 164 BC celebrate their independence, celebrate the defeat of the enemy, celebrate the um, reclaiming and purifying their temple? How did they celebrate? Well, what I'm gonna show you now on the screen is not the word of God, it's an apocryphal book, but look at Maccabees. 2 Maccabees 10, 7. But now carrying what? You see it? This is 164 BC, Maccabean revolt. They're celebrating their independence from the enemy. But now carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around, 
singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. 164 BC, the Jews celebrated their victory by parading around with palm branches. Thank you, Lord, you've delivered us from the enemy, from the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Seleucid Empire. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Judas Maccabees. And now we come back to Mark chapter 11, about 200 years later, and what's happening? The Jews, again, are under the oppression of the enemy. This time, not by the Seleucids, but by what empire? You tell me, the Roman Empire. And they're waving palm branches. Not with Judas Maccabeus, but they're waving palm branches to honor Jesus Christ. And what are they saying? They're saying, Hosanna. What does the word mean in the Hebrew? It means save now. Do you see the similarities? Jesus, riding on the donkey. Save us now from the Roman oppression like the Maccabees saved our ancestors from the Seleucids. But there was a big problem with their agenda for Jesus. If you're taking notes, this is key. Jesus did not come to deliver them from the Romans. He came to deliver us all from Satan, sin, and death. Do you see it? Do you see the difference between Jesus' agenda and their agenda? You gotta stay with me as I, as I apply this now to our lives. And so I personally believe with all my heart that Jesus authentically offered the kingdom to Israel during his three-year ministry. But how did they respond? This is, I'm talking about way before the triumphal entry, Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel. How did they respond? How did the leaders of Israel respond to Jesus? He's not a Messiah. He was born of fornication. He does miracles in the power of Beelzebub. And they rejected their king. What did Jesus do? He withdrew the offer of the kingdom, postponed it to the second coming. And he began to talk about the kingdom in different terms. Matthew 13, if you wanna read it later, describes the present kingdom in our age. He began to say things like this. If you're with me, say amen. amen. He began to say, the kingdom of God is within you. And so here comes Jesus. He's not there to deliver them from the Romans. He's there to deliver them from Satan, sin, and death. The crowd wanted him to talk about political things. But Jesus came to talk about spiritual things. The crowd wanted him to reign over Israel, but he came to reign over their hearts. The crowd wanted him to save their nation, but he came to save their souls. The crowd wanted an earthly kingdom right here, right now, but Jesus talked about the kingdom is within you. It's very troubling to me, ladies and gentlemen, when Christians today, especially evangelicals, act more like this crowd in Jerusalem than true followers of Jesus Christ. 
It's troubling to me when Christians are more passionate about pushing forward their political agenda than following Jesus Christ. It's very troubling to me. It's very troubling to me when evangelicals and Christians, they have this mindset, Hosanna, save now, Lord. Save our political party. Save our view of what America should look like. Establish our kingdom on the earth. And what they do is they allow politics to have a higher priority in their hearts than Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. And that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, we must have more passion for Christ's kingdom than for man's kingdom. Let's stop misrepresenting the Lord and get our priorities straight. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm all for exercising our freedoms as Americans. I'm all for getting involved as Christians in the political process. I'm all for taking a stand for what's right. I'm especially for, and you guys who know me know this, I'm especially for exercising our right to vote. But we cross a line when man's kingdom becomes a higher priority in our heart than Christ's kingdom. We cross the line when we look at people from another political party as the enemy instead of maybe that person needs Jesus in their life. Right? Amen, Romy? We cross the line when we get ugly and blast people on Facebook because they don't agree with our political position. We cross the line when we're more passionate about politics than we are about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do these things and we cross this line, we misrepresent the Lord and we're no different from this Jerusalem crowd who's waving palm branches for the wrong reason. The hope for America is not primarily about the right man in the White House. The hope for America is primarily about the right man in our hearts. Jesus, Christ, the Lord. And Jesus is a million times more important than any of those politicians over in Washington. And his kingdom will outlast all of their kingdoms. I'm very troubled when the evangelical church allows politicians to come into their church service. And I know that some of these politicians love the Lord, praise God for that. But when some of these politicians that don't even care about the Lord and they use the church for their own political agenda, shame on us. We are not primarily about politics. We are not primarily about establishing our kingdom on the earth. We are primarily not about trying to make America into what we think it ought to be. What we are most passionate about is our hero, Jesus, and how he can save people's souls. How he can change us from the inside out. And what is so sad to me is that this crowd in your Bible, when they find out by the end of the week that Jesus is not all about their agenda, you know what happens? They turn against him. On Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Friday, crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Because he's not a puppet doing what they want him to do. And Jesus knew this was gonna happen. And he got very emotional 
as he's riding down the western slope of the Mount of Olives on his donkey, look at the parallel passage in Luke. Look at what happens here. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he what? You see it? You see how it breaks his heart? The word weep there is not a little tear he had to wipe away. This is, in the, in the original language, he's convulsing. His shoulders are going up and down. He's crying out loud. He's wailing on the donkey. He wept over Jerusalem saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day, by the way, this very day he's writing in is prophesied in Daniel chapter nine. This day, the things that make for your peace. But now, Israel, they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they, your enemy, will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why, why Lord, Israel says, because you did not know the time of your visitation, the time of the visitation of the Messiah. Jesus foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen in just 37 years. And in AD 70, sure enough, Peter's dead, Paul's dead, John's up in Asia Minor starting churches. Christianity has spread, gotten away from um, the temple. And what happened is the, the Jews revolted against the Romans and they took back Jerusalem and the Romans sent in Titus Vespasian, the, the general, and the Roman battalion surrounded the city of Jerusalem, cut off supply lines for 143 days, no food in, no food out, no water in, no water out, and a great famine occurred in the city of Jerusalem. It got so bad that when Jewish people died, other Jews ate them. Some Jews tried to escape, jumped the, 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 the wall, and they were captured by the Roman soldiers and they were crucified for all to see. And so when the Romans finally breached the wall, they got into to Jerusalem, they burned down the temple. They, caught, they set it on fire. And what happened was all that gold in the temple melted down in between all the stones. And you know what the Roman soldiers did? They dismantled every stone. It had to take them months. They dismantled every stone from the Jewish temple and they scraped the gold off of these boulders in fulfillment of what Jesus said, they will not leave one stone upon another. Do you see, do you see how serious this is? Do you see how important this is? Do you see all the fulfilled prophecy? Authenticating that this book is God's word and Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And so by the time the Romans were finished crushing this Jewish rebellion in AD 70, tens of thousands of Jews had been slaughtered, men, women, children, and Jesus foresaw it all. And he's weeping. He could see what's gonna happen in 37 years. He's weeping, these are his people. The crowd's cheering, he's crying. And so he says, would that you, 
even you had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He takes the donkey, wipes his tears, rides down through the Kidron Valley up to Jerusalem. Last verse, but please stay with me to the end. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So John the apostle says something very significant. I really want everyone to see this on the screen. John said that Jesus came to his own people, that's Israel, and even they rejected him. But to all, everybody please say all. Okay, that's Jews and Gentiles. Do you see that? But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah, but God's word says that anybody, Jew or Gentile, that will turn from their sins and turn to Jesus as Lord and accept him, into their lives. He'll make a triumphal entry right into your heart. He'll save you from Satan, sin, and death. He'll make you a child of God. What's better than that? The kingdom of God can be within you, but you need to submit to the king. And so I wanna give you an opportunity to do that right here and right now, because there's two groups of people that are here today. The first group is there's some people here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never submitted to him as Lord. And today's the day you need to come to Christ like blind Bartimaeus and he'll give you sight. There's another group of people here and, and, and you committed your life to Christ a long time ago, but, but you're so far, so far away from him like the prodigal son. You're not living for him. Listen to me very carefully. If that's you in either group, Jesus loves you. God showed his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you need to come to Jesus. Remember, Bartimaeus responded to his call. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He doesn't have to keep calling. So if you need to give your life to Jesus or you need to come back to Jesus and rededicate your life, I'm gonna do something a little different today. I'm gonna to ask you to say, excuse me to the person next to you. I'm gonna ask you to come out of your seat and do something really brave. Come right down here to this altar and you know who you are. You need to come to Jesus or come back to Jesus. Just stand up, say, excuse me. Everybody would love to make way, believe me, for you to respond to the Lord's call. I'm not gonna delay this much longer. I'm just gonna say, if you're here and you need to come, just come right now. Don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Just come right now, whoever you are. Let's really give it up. God bless you, man, that's awesome. Let's really give it up to those who are responding to the Lord today. That's awesome. What, what this courageous, 
what this, what this courageous man is doing is he's basically saying, come on up if you wanna come up. What he's saying, what I love about this and this young man here, listen, what they're saying is that if Jesus can stand publicly on a nail, if he can stand publicly on a nail, I can certainly stand up in front, front, front of a bunch of God's people and declare my love for Jesus Christ. And I know, I know there's more that need to respond. God is calling you and it's a call of love. It's not a call of condemnation. Respond to his call today. Come to Jesus or come back to Jesus, whoever you are. Amen. Awesome, beautiful. Come on back, come on back to the Lord. He loves you. He wants you to live for him again, whoever you are. It takes a lot of courage to do that. One last call and then I'm gonna move on here. One last call. All right, awesome, man. Good job, good job. Beautiful, 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 awesome. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Listen, isn't this what it's all about right here? Isn't this why we exist as a church? I'm telling you, the day is coming where we will absolutely take our final breath and we will stand eyeball to eyeball to Jesus Christ. And we will either live forever in hell or we will live forever in heaven. It depends on your response to him. Make that right choice today. And maybe you're elderly, maybe you need some help. We'll get people, we'll get ushers to come help you to come on down, whoever you might be. But I need to move on. And so if you guys could just turn around and, and look at me and I wanna make sure that everybody understands uh, what you're doing here. And so the, the, the main thing that we're doing is you're submitting your life to Jesus. I'm not sure if you're coming to him for the first time or if you're coming back to him, either way, it's awesome that you wanna submit to him as Lord of your life, whereas you're not gonna be perfect the rest of your life, none of us are, but he will be Lord and you're submitting to that Lordship. And it's very important that you recognize that Jesus paid it all. He died for every sin, past, present, future that you could ever commit or will commit. He died, he shed his blood so that you guys, all of us would not have to die and pay for our own sins in hell. And so that's our King, that's our savior. And so we're gonna go to him and we're gonna call on the name of the Lord. It says in Romans 10, nine and 10, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so we're gonna do that right now. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and don't repeat a poem, but I want you to say this from your heart to his heart out loud. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I know the penalty for sin is death. but I believe you died for me and paid for all my sins. I believe you rose again and I respond to you. Please come into my heart, be my Lord and my boss and be my savior Please forgive all my sins.
Help me from this day forward to live for you. And it's in your awesome name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Come on up, Matt. Hey, guys, you can do way better than that. They just gave their lives to Christ. Let them know how much you love them. Awesome. So if you guys could all, after Pastor Will closes in prayer, if you guys could all see Pastor Matt after Pastor Will closes in prayer, that'll be awesome. And just know that we're gonna be praying for you as your church family every every week. We're gonna be praying for you. I wanna encourage those of you who came to Christ for the first time to follow him in baptism, all right? And so I love you guys. Pastor Will, come on up, please, and close us out.